from the Three Story Method Podcast Network. This is the Serial Fiction Show. I'm Christine Daigle. And I'm J.P. Reinbush. Welcome to another episode of the Reader Serial Fiction Show. Today, we've got a sci-fi adventure by L.P. Styles, pen name for co-authors Christine Daigle and Stuart Sternberg. His writing has been featured in several H.P. Lovecraft-inspired anthologies, including Frontier Cthulhu and Tales out of Miskatonic University. His steampunk fantasy, The Emerald Key, co-written by my wonderful co-host Christine Daigle. Neuropsychologist by day, Christine also has several short fiction works that can be found in Apex Magazine and various anthologies like Playground of Lost Toys and Alice Unbound. They are working on a new serial called The Molecule Thief. Genius misfit Spencer Newton faces war when invisible beings from an alternate reality travel through a portal. In order to stop his world from ending, he must travel to the other side with no guarantee that he'll make it back. And now here's a sample of The Molecule Thief. Episode 1. I am Spencer Newton, and I am somewhere else. I'm hundreds of thousands of dandelion seeds spread out on the breeze. I'm years away while still standing in front of your face. Seattle, a past. The floor of my house rumbled and slid, (laughs) and I laughed. Scared as hell, and I laughed. Not a true belly laugh, but a nervous, idiotic laugh with fits of nasal twittering. Mom and Dad shouted, I don't know what. They looked right at me, but I couldn't make out the words as cracks spread through the wall and ceiling. I stood in the hallway in my underwear, glancing back toward my bedroom, wondering where I put my pants from the night before. The house shook harder and I fell. Spencer! Dad screamed and seized my wrist. Instinctively, I jerked away. I stopped laughing and righted myself. The quake rolled the house in thundering waves, and I stood in a rowboat in the middle of a turbid ocean. I leaned against the wall and closed my eyes, palms sweating. Don't look, don't look. My dad grabbed my arm again. It hurt so much as he pulled me across the oak floor. I stumbled, landing hard on my face. Help him! My mom's voice broke. My dad reached under me and lifted, half-dragging me down the hall as blood trailed from my nose. Seeing the blood, I cried and flailed. I think I shouted. The tremors intensified, and the vibrations were inside me, alive and trying to get out. My dad fought me, wild eyes darting everywhere, jaw clenched tight. My mom joined in, trying to haul me somewhere safe, but I wasn't sure where safe was. Maybe under the table, or under the bed. Maybe it didn't matter. Safe is an idea, not a place. Safe is a time. Like... Vancouver Island, now. The beach is rocky and full of driftwood. 
enormous bones of oarfish and other smaller fish are scattered everywhere. I squat and stroke a piece of blanched wood. So smooth. There's a sound. I check the trees. Leaves rustle nearby, turning up one side to the sky. I watch them and see a tree that's dying. I can tell by the way the leaves move. The mountains from the east watch me back in layers that stretch higher and higher until their snowy tops melt into the sky. I like being on the beach. I feel less hemmed in here. It's the only open spot on the peninsula where I'm not surrounded by towering pines. There are no trees, no buildings, no rows of employee housing. I can see the peaks of Mount Baker and Mount Rainier. An open sky stretches to the west until it's swallowed by the ocean. Out in the water, clumps of rock hunch down in dense huddles that bind them together against the constant wearing of the waves. When I was younger, before the quake hit, I took Vivance, also clonidine to help me sleep. I remember sitting in a chair by the dark window, unable to move, feeling my skin crawling, ready to run away from me. Yeah, the drugs work. Yeah, they help keep my thoughts in order and attention focused. Yeah, I still need them. My mom keeps at me, but I just don't take them. Like so many other things, I just don't. There's this one oarfish preserved in the water, floating where the sea's frosting meets the shore. The fish is wild. It's like a shiny stone. It has a soapy substance on it and around it. I see something in one of its mirror-like scales. A color like no other color. A color I can't name, and my mind can hardly hold on to. It sort of reminds me of the inside of a fire opal. You can't just look at something. You have to look at it close, then far away. See it from different angles, and then close your eyes and still see it in your mind. Look at it until it isn't there. Until it's something else. Everything is always something else. Even time. I crouch down by the fish, and the water laps at the rubber tips of my shoes. Next to it, my reflection stares at me. My signature shock of honey-colored hair, that untamed bedhead I can't comb the curl out of. The water ripples, and my face, as long and stretched out as the rest of me, becomes a funhouse mirror. The angles, all wrong. Obtuse where they should be acute. You can't trust reflections. The fish rocks between the crests and troughs of the water, and on a whim, I touch the scummy film that surrounds it. It's called grave wax. The voice startles me. I lose my balance, face-planting in the middle of the fish. It's as hard as a bar of soap, except where it's liquefied. The scales and ooze cling to my face. I gag while I push myself up out of the ocean.
It leaves a disgusting salt and rancid seafood taste on my lips. I wipe my face, but there's nothing to do about my drenched clothes. I turn around. A girl I recognize stares back at me. Maud Faraday. I've seen her around. Our moms work in the same lab, and my mom suggested we get to know one another, but I can't exactly go up to a girl and say, Hey, my mom says we should be friends. Without her thinking, I'm a total loser. Maud's cute. She's skinny and wears tight jeans with no holes in them. Her hair is dyed the color of an oil slick, and her uneven bangs are too long, so they hang in front of one charcoal-underlined eye. She's pale, except where her fingers are kind of reddish-purple, like she has poor circulation or something, and her fingernails are short and ragged. She wears a white tank under an oversized aviator jacket, along with some kind of knockoff Chuck Taylors with no laces. It's called adipocere, actually, I say, and straighten my posture. She twists up one side of her lip, and I think maybe I amuse her. Show off. All wet and covered in fish slime, I don't feel like much of a show off. Grave wax sounds cooler, though. The oarfish are massive, aren't they? She steps closer, and I take a step back like an idiot. The way she looks at me, I'm sure she's sizing me up. Hmm, she'll be disappointed. I suppose I'm sizing her up, too. She gives me a broad smile. Her teeth are square and white, with a little space between the front two. This perfect gap, partly covered by the bow of her lip, glossed red, gives her a sensual, deviant look. I return the smile and think maybe her eyes brighten. An osprey catches my attention. It drops into the water after something, but comes up empty. It dives again a second later. An engine starts inland. Someone's cutting down trees, I think. She takes another step toward me and says, There's a Japanese myth that claims oarfish are underwater dragons. Dragons? I love dragons. I imagine the oarfish changing, its ugly face lengthening, and the eyes deepening with fire. The tail stretches, whipping back and forth. They say when an oarfish washes up from the deep, earthquakes follow. Who are they? She raises an eyebrow. Obviously, she hadn't expected that one. Her tone becomes at once imperious and conspiratorial. The same they that say oarfish are dragons. The same they that say the underwater dragons control the tides with magic jewels. Then I guess they were right. About the fish predicting the quake, anyway. You're Spencer Newton, she says. She reaches out and I duck away, but not before she's plucked an oarfish scale out of my hair. It's funny we don't have any classes together, but I hear you're some kind of genius. I don't ask what year she's in. 
She looks like a freshman, maybe a sophomore. I can't judge. But then people always assume I'm older than I am. I'm told my brooding is quite mature. And now it's time for our author interview with me. So this was an excellent episode. You guys pulled me into the character's head and you made me experience everything the way that they experienced it. That opening with Spencer Newton is something, he's like somewhere else spatially, temporally, and yet presently at your side. That really tells me uh, the experience that I'm about to get. What inspired you guys to write something like this? Well, you know, what happened is uh, Christine came to me and said, here's an idea. And I said, no. And I said, here's my counter idea. And she said, no. And uh, then we sort of argued. And out of the argument rose uh, an idea. And really what was important was the idea of uh, empowerment the idea of taking a look at the other, the person as the other, and uh, those who are alienated, those who are disaffected, those who are disenfranchised, and bringing them along into a sense of empowerment. And that was the inspiration overall. The rest was all just our typical process. Yeah, so I think initially I had just, wanted to do something with quantum physics because I'm that kind of nerd. And then pairing it with uh, Spencer's voice as someone who also has ADHD, I really wanted to put that voice out there. I just thought it would be super fun to write. And I think Spencer does have great voice in this piece. And then it kind of evolved into other characters also having different strengths and areas where they're maybe weak or ashamed and and kind of looking at how they can use their their talents yeah your your main character who uh is neurodivergent as you stated he has adhd and uh, right from the point you mentioned the medication i was like oh i know that medication It, it was really interesting to me because you guys definitely like portrayed that character really well Uh, What sort of research did you guys do to craft that kind of character and the ones that you're mentioning? Every time uh, Christine has an idea, I end up doing a ridiculous amount of research. Christine herself, when she'll she'll tell you, her background is amazing when it comes to neuroscience. My own, not so much. But as a teacher who has been trained to work with all sorts of students who may be designated special ed, what I did was to put myself into the mindset of my students, and that helped me. Unfortunately, Christine also demanded that I do research about electromagnetic waves and quantum physics and earthquakes and you know everything else I never, ever wanted to know about. So thank you. Thank you, Christine. You're very welcome. And yet, for me, it wasn't a lot of research, as Stuart said. Um, Professionally, my background is in in neuropsychology, but also personally, I've had personal experience with ADHD. So I know what it's like to be uh, a little bit different in a social situation or a work situation where you've missed something someone said at a party or you have missed what's been said in a department meeting. And people are like, what's going on? We talked about that now, like we did, but also. You know, the flip side of that is that, okay, maybe you're a little bit 
strange in social circles sometimes because you've missed something or not picked up on it. But also, uh, I, I have the hyper focus part. So when I get into a project, sometimes to my detriment, I can be down that rabbit hole for hours and just obsessing about it until it's perfect. So that was something that when I was younger, was always a little bit, I was a little bit ashamed of it. I was always kind of quiet or not talking because I knew that my mouth was impulsive and it would get me in trouble or I'd be talking in the wrong situation. So I just thought that it would be fun to bring that into a character. So that, I mean, Spencer is not me, but there are aspects of him that are me. So that was, was one, the voice was one. And then just looking at that in other ways with the other characters, what other things could there be that we can explore about how that makes you different or fit into the world? And, and really, I think it was just an exploration of that. For the most part, for me, I guess some of writing is like what acting would be, which is you get into the role of the character and you explore the motivations of the character and you live through the character. And that, that's pretty much it. All right. So with this story, Molecule Thief, is everything planned out or do you plan on using some sort of audience participation to drive where the story goes? Stuart and I are outliners. We are plotters. So we like to have things ahead of time. Whether we stick to an outline or not is uh, another story. We often will outline and then end up somewhere else, but we like to have a roadmap. I think serial fiction is new for us. So I think it's going to be some wait and see. You know, we have several episodes planned out. I think we're at a, we're going to be about 20 by, by the time Vela launches. But definitely, I think we're going to take a look and see what the audience response is to what we're doing. It's, yeah. And also, I, I think that when I look at Vela or when I look at serial writing, I, I look at, at Pulp and I think uh, a lot of what we're doing right now is taking something that we've outlined and tailoring each episode for a serial audience. And I guess what, what our thought is that you only have a reader for an episode. Ide you know, ideally, you have them for the entire journey. But if you only have them for one episode, you got to, at each episode, at any point, someone could say, well, you know, this is getting really boring. I'm moving on. But you, so that, our philosophy is you better grab them and keep them in each episode. It has to be a, a hook. And that's real different from the regular pacing of a novel where you can sort of stroll along and you're developing, which, which goes kind of the book written by Moss and, uh, about the emotional craft of writing. And one of the things that Moss would say is that if you're dealing with emotion, uh, one of the things you want to do is give writers or readers time to process the emotion by offering smaller details. And I don't necessarily see that ability or time factor available in serialization. So you have to be really crafty at what detail you're offering to be able to give cues. But the great thing about readers is I've never yet met a horror reader, a reader of, of horror fiction, who said, you know, I'm reading this and I don't want to be scared. I've never read uh, a reader of, you know, science fiction who said, you know, give me something mundane. I, I don't want to be amazed. I don't want to be, who wants tension through that? So, yeah, um, 
there is a definite process that we're looking at in, in serialization. Knowing that you guys are outlining and really you had the opportunity to grab someone in episode one, is there something that hasn't been covered in episode one that you're really excited to show readers? A lot. I mean, in episode one is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. There's only two characters in it. There are many more characters to be introduced. Uh, we have another character that's going to be uh, integral to the the pair that's introduced here. They're going to be a trio. So he is coming up in the next episode with his own talents and challenges. So lots of new characters, lots of weird quantum physics stuff coming up. I am super excited about that. I mean, it's all very accessible. So you have you can have zero knowledge of anything quantum physics and it will be fun. But just for me, it was really exciting to play around with space and time and the linear nature of our existence. Fun fact, I did six credits in physics in undergrad, which just because I enjoyed it, I enjoyed learning about the nature of the universe. And I don't understand all of it. Like there is so much to to reality and, and things that make reality. So I'm really looking forward to the audience seeing how we play with that. And hopefully it's really fun for them. There's also a nuclear bomb. So that will be fun as well. Speaking of crazy quantum mechanics, crazy quantum physics, and this impending war of invisible creatures, uh, without giving too much away, what can you say about these creatures or that world? You know, that was a, a challenge. There is a short story by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft that's always intrigued me, which is a color out of space. And one of the things that H.P. Lovecraft asked you to do is to imagine a color you've never experienced. And I thought, well, what is that? I mean, how, if you've never experienced it, you can't imagine it. And uh, so in dealing with the challenge of molecule thief, we wanted to write a world that was so alien, a dimension so alien that it would challenge us as writers and readers to to uh, to envision it, and with it, with uh, I mean, you have obviously different world, different physics, different rules to the being's existence. It's so so alien. I originally wanted to have a bunch of little green men and women, and and others, and you know, silver spacesuits and bubble helmets, but. Christine nixed that really early on in the process. But the, so that's, that's a tough one. And uh, the other problem is motivation. How do you look at the motivation of an alien presence? And, and again, that falls back into, there's only so much you can do because you're limited by your own imagination. And uh, you're, re you're writing for an audience. At some point, you, you've got to, I mean, you always got to come back to that. What Stuart said, there was just a lot that we wanted to play with. There was a mathematician whose name I forget. I know it starts with an E, but I am blanking on it, who said that he could visualize things in four dimensions. And that just stuck with me. How do you see something in four dimensions? What does it look like when time is not linear, when it's everything in time is present in the same place at the same time? Uh, I remember... I get really nerdy about this. So I remember when um, my husband was getting fitted for his suit for our wedding and he came out of the 
changing room and said, how do these pants look? And I was like, shh, Professor Mullet is talking about how time is a loop on the TV. I can't pay attention to your pants right now. So I'm, I'm always just fascinated by this about if we weren't confined by our neurobiology, by our brains, if we could experience things differently, if things moved in superposition, could be at two places in one time, or if we experienced time in its entirety, what would that be like? And we can't know that because obviously our brains are linear. We can't think non-linearly, or most of us can't, I guess, as one mathematician can see things in four dimensions, but I can't. So I've just always been interested in exploring that. What would it be like if our world was different? What would it be like if an alternate reality came in, if things came in that don't operate, that we operate here, or if we could go there and then our senses would change and we would experience things differently. So that's really what I wanted to play with in this. Yeah, I I could nerd out about science like all day uh, if I really wanted to, but I'll try really hard not to. But on reading this, I definitely got that vibe of like the movie Arrival and Ender's Game. So it's really nice hearing that that's kind of the the quantum direction you want to take it, because that was like the, the ambiance I was getting when I was reading it. So that makes me even more excited to read this and just throwing that out there. I felt like I was hovering over the shoulder of Spencer in his mind, playing a role of his mind, if that makes sense. And it it was interesting because especially in his moments of ADD or ADHD, it was funny because I was reading it and I'm like, no, Spencer, focus over here. And then he would focus over here. And it was almost like I was playing a role of him focusing. I don't know if that was just my own insanity or something else, but it definitely had that like, I felt like an active role in the reading it, uh, which was cool. Yeah. So yeah, he definitely, his frontal lobes don't work the way he should. So yeah, you're being his external frontal lobes. You can do it, buddy. Just focus. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, I guess as a last question, out of curiosity, if your legal guardian or guardians were contacted to work for the Global Energy Research Initiative and you had the opportunity to learn from teacher scientists, what would you study? Wow. That's really a hard question. I, I, would, I would probably study music. <laughs> I, that's what that's what Maud does is here she's she's an artist and here she's in this the scientific community and what is she she's she's a musician I really empathize with her but it, it's funny because even though she's a musician she's as alien in that world in some ways as Spencer not to say that people who are scientific obviously aren't also creative and musicians writers but they are but if i had to study it'd be music yeah i think my answer would be more boring i would like to learn more about quantum physics because there is so much i really was into string theory for a while and then there got to be so many dimensions it just kind of went over my head so i'd love to learn more about that i'd love to learn more about the competing views of time travel theory because they are also interesting. I would love to learn more about particle collision and all the weird things that come with that. So yeah, that's what I would like to learn. Thank you, Christine and Stuart, for discussing Molecule Thief. Um, And hopefully the readers will uh, enjoy what you guys have coming forward. Thanks.
Our thanks to LP Styles for letting us share a sample of their episode. If you like it, you can find the link to where you can read more of the story in the show notes. Also, if you're a writer, we have a companion podcast, The Writer Serial Fiction Show, where we talk to authors about their stories and discuss the elements of writing compelling serial fiction. Finally, we want to thank you for listening to The Reader Serial Fiction Show. Someone who might enjoy the show, send them your favorite episode link. And if you want to leave an Apple podcast review, we read all of them and use your suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, and we'll see you next time with another serial fiction episode. And And that's that's a wrap. wrap. We did it in tandem that time. That was awesome. We're like skydive buddies.